You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, how are we? Good, good, good. Good morning. Glad you are here. Uh, oh, and, and I'm, I'm great, by the way. Thank you for asking. Such a, such a, such a one-way conversation that we have up here. Good to be with you here this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the New Testament today. We were in the Old Testament last week, New Testament this morning. Philippians chapter 2 is where we are camping out. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully you do. We are in church. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. This morning, I want to talk with you about relationship goals. Relationship goals. This is a phrase that you've probably heard before. It's very common on uh, especially social media. And, and here's how it will generally happen, right? You'll see a couple post a picture of themselves. Maybe they're on a date. Maybe it's a dinner selfie or a picture of them out and about having fun with one another, usually smiling and enchanted with one another. And people see the picture and they think to themselves, What I see in this picture is what I want in my own relationship or future relationship. This is a goal of mine. And so what do they normally comment with? Hashtag relationship goals. Relationship goals. In other words, relationship goals are those things that you see other couples demonstrating that you want to strive for in your own relationship or in future relationships. Now, never mind that what you see on social media is not at all the whole story. Never mind the fact that the couples actually might be very unhappy in the picture that you're looking at, that the date might have ended in a massive blowout. The couple might be the worst possible model for relationship goals. The fact is, the picture looks good. I want to be happy. They look happy. Hashtag relationship goals, right? This is just the fleeting nature of social media in general. So I titled the message this morning, Relationship Goals. And and this morning, I want to talk about what those goals really look like, not just snapshots on social media, but lasting, authentic, and most importantly, biblical relationship goals. But here's the catch, all right? Hear me when I say this. We're not going to be talking about the relationships that you might have in mind. We're not talking about marriage. We're not talking about dating, although certainly many of the things that we say here, in fact, all of them that we say here today, could apply to those things. We're going to be talking about another kind of relationship, one of the most important uh, relationships that every Christian should be in, every Christian should be engaged in, uh, and, and what you need to do to maximize your potential for that particular relationship. We're going to be talking this morning about relationships that we forge in the local church, specifically here at City on a Hill. Relationships in the local body. Now, I want to emphasize as much as possible always to you, anytime we we get together and we talk about the church, that City on a Hill is not a building, right? City on a Hill is not 1140 Morrison Drive. It isn't me. It isn't our elders. It isn't the church staff. City on a Hill is a local body of believers in Jesus Christ. That is us, collectively, that includes you. We are a people, in other words. And bound up within this people are relationships. That if we are truly going to be the body of Christ, that if we are truly going to operate in the way that God has designed the local church to operate, we better be in relationships with one another. 
And if we are going to be in relationships with one another, we need to have goals to set to make sure that those relationships are where they should be. Not only horizontally, but also vertically as well, right? Because we have that, that sort of vertical, horizontal connection within this body of Christ. So this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. Relationship goals here at City on a Hill. Letter, letter of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, it is addressed to a church, honestly, not too different from us today. Uh, different culture, different language, but, but the same values, the same moral issues, more or less, were happening. I mean, there, this letter is as applicable to us today as it was then when, when Paul penned the letter to the, to the Philippians. Philippi, the city where this church is located, is in modern-day Kavala in Greece. Uh, just to kind of give you, I know for most people, that means nothing. Because geography is just not something that we major in in America. If it's not American, I don't care, right? Uh, it's kind of the, the attitude. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying it's kind of the way it is. Second chapter of Philippians, Paul instructs believers to do three things. There are three relationship goals, if you will, that if we will follow these goals, our relationships here at City on a Hill will, will certainly improve. They will certainly I believe, bring about blessing in your life and blessing to the community that we exist in. So, so can we do that? Can we talk about that? Are we excited? All right, that's what I love to hear. First, here's the first relationship goal that we find. Number one, you got to get on the same page. You got to get on the same page. Read verses one and two. It says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete. Now pause there for a moment. What is Paul doing? Paul is setting up what he's about to ask of them. He's about to make the ask. He's about to command them a few things that will improve them. And so in order to do that, he's sort of setting, he's priming the pump, if you will, okay? Uh, these are all things that should be, that he just mentioned in verses 1 and 2, present in our lives as Christians, we should find encouragement in Christ. We should find consolation in love and fellowship and compassion and affection in the Holy Spirit that indwells in all of us. So what he's saying is, if you are the real deal, if you really are a follower of Jesus, then listen to me, understand what I am saying, and do it. Follow it. Fulfill it. And then he gives us this first goal. This is the second part of verse 2. He says, By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In other words, get on the same page with one another. Be unified with one another. The body of Christ ought to be synced up, unified. You should have unity in your midst. There shouldn't be infighting or campaigning or feuds or, or any of the other things that bring division to this community. He's saying, get on the same page with one another. Now, relationships that aren't rarely last. Am I right? If you're not synced up, things are going to go bad quickly. And I want to break this down because there's really three things in this first point. That, that outline how we get on the same page with one another. And each phrase in this verse has a unique meaning. The first thing he says is, you got to think the same. To be on the same page means to think the same. The New American Standard translates this, having the same mind. If you're reading the NIV, it says being like-minded. It's the Greek word phroneo, and it means literally to think. To think, to use your mind. But I think it goes a little deeper than that. In verse 5, actually, of this same chapter, we're going to get to it here in a little while, we find the same word again where he says, have the same attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That word attitude, it's the same word, phroneo. 
So to think and attitude are somehow connected, and I, and I really like that. I think that's actually an accurate reflection of what Paul is intending to communicate here. Attitude reflects what you think. Have you ever thought about that? Your attitude says something about what you think. It reflects what's going on inwardly. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. We have three little girls at home, Jessica and I do, eight, seven, and now five. Lydia has turned five, going on 31. Um, Anytime they ask to do something, whether it's like go to McDonald's for the third time that day, or Six Flags at seven o'clock at night on a Tuesday, or, or whatever, something that, you know, in the mind of a kid seems reasonable, and in the mind of an adult is like not very reasonable. They will ask, they will make the ask, and generally Jessica and I will say, I'm sorry, sweetheart, but no, we can't do that. And we'll give the reasoning, it's too late, we got school, you don't need to eat McDonald's that much, we need to eat healthier food, right? Whatever it is that we're talking about. And if we say no, which we normally do, you can tell what our children think about that answer by their attitude. They may be saying the right things, but their attitude communicates something very different. I can say, sweetheart, I know you're upset that we can't, we can't do that, but, but do you understand why daddy said no? And they'll go, yes, sir. Right? They're using manners. I mean, they, they literally say, yes, sir. But their attitude says something very different about what they feel inwardly. That's what Paul's getting at here. Have the same attitude among yourselves. Think the same about what is happening in the church. Don't just act the part. Don't just say what you know you should say. Don't just give words, you know, lip service to whatever it is that's happening. But be on the same wavelength. Have the same attitude about what is happening in the mission at City on a Hill. It doesn't mean, and I want you to get this, it doesn't mean that we just, just completely kill individuality. That's not what Paul's saying, right? God gives unique gifting through his Holy Spirit to every believer, and those gifts vary according to his grace and mercy. We did a whole study on the spiritual gifts on Wednesday nights in here. Uh, those are on YouTube, by the way. By the way, just as a side note, if, if you are on YouTube ever and you think to go to the church YouTube page, click that subscribe button for us. It really helps us out. Uh, we put out a lot of content, not only for you guys, but to reach other people as well, and uh, that does us a lot of good. In that page, there is a uh, gifted series where we talked about the Holy Spirit and the gifting that he gives to other believers, and that every believer has different gifting, right? And, and Paul likens it to a human body, and, and, and Paul is basically saying not all of us are thumbs, right? That, that we, have different, we have different gifts, we're different parts of the body, but when you put those gifts together, it makes up the full body with Christ being the head. So I'm not saying we kill individuality here. We have different giftings. God calls us to different missions and ministries, and, and, and there are different passions that he puts on the hearts of his people. But in all of those things, he's saying be light-minded, think the same. If you're going to get on the same page with one another as a local body, you need to have the same attitude about what it is that is happening at City on a Hill. Be like-minded. Think the same. Second, he says that you need to love the same. You need to love the same. Verse 2, he says, maintaining the same love. We are, the, the reality is we're called to love one another as Christians. That is, in fact, the mark, did you know this, the mark of our Christian faith to the outside world. When people, when, when we talk about, well, how will the, how will the world know that, that I'm a Christian? You know, is it because I have a, a, a bumper sticker on that says something churchy or religious? Is it because I, I wear a shirt or I have a bracelet or I have a coffee mug that says some 
Bible verse that's ripped right out of its context. Those Bible, those, those cups. I just wish we had more realistic verses on our Bible, or on our cups. You know, that, that sounds like a good business. We need to get on that. We need to get on that. Who is artsy here? Contact me, and we'll get an Etsy page going. It'll be great. Um, the reality is, is that love actually is the marker that when the world looks at us, that's the thing. That's the thing that they go, they must be different. They must be followers of Jesus. Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All people in the world will look at you, and if you have love for one another, they'll go, they must be Christians. They see you, and you're somehow set apart. You're different. You're distinctly Christian by how you love others. That's what Paul's getting at. To think of it another way, you could think of it this way. He's saying you need to use the same brand of love. You need to use the same brand of love. I want you to think for a moment about phones. I'm an Apple guy. If you're an Android guy, that's fine. It is what it is, right? I'm not going to make any pot shots. I'm just, I'm more comfortable with Apple. I'm in the Apple ecosystem. I have a computer, the iPad, I have the watch. I, I can't get out of it. I'm trapped. I'm in the Apple prison at this point. Um, but, but I don't think Androids are bad. I've had them before. I don't have any problem with Androids until I am in a group message with someone who has an Android. You guys ruin it. You ruin the fun. You ruin... So if you don't know this, if you don't have an Apple phone, there is something called iMessaging. iMessaging is great. It's just like text messaging, but the difference is when you're in a group, you can rename the message group. So it can, it can be like one simple word, family, right? All the people in your family on a text message group, so much better than 817, number, 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 that you don't know. And you're, you're constantly wondering, well, who, or, or a bunch of names, which, which group is this? I'm in several groups with these people, right? And that happens when someone with an Android ends up getting added into the mix. In fact, I won't name names because, uh, because I don't want to do that. But, but our elder, our elder body, we have a, an iMessage group, there's one guy that I just messaged separately. I'm like, I'm not ruining this. I'm not adding him to the group because it's going to ruin the whole thing. And so I just copy and paste everything I send to him. He knows who he is. He'll get a kick out of that. Uh, say again? No, see, I don't want to use another app. Group me. No, 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 no. The point is, the point is, if you got the same brand, there's good, easy, solid unity. When someone else has a different brand as the other people, it changes things, right? It, it kind of it makes things a little more complicated. That's, that's, in essence, what Paul's getting at here with regard to love. When you have the same brand of love, it amplifies the unity that is among believers. In other words, if there are many brands of love, but if we're going to be on the same page, we need to be using the same brand collectively. Now, the question becomes, which brand of love do we use? Which brand of love are we to adopt? There are a lot of brands of love in the Greek language. You've probably heard this before if you've been around churches uh, any length of time. In fact, C.S. Lewis famously wrote a book called The Four Loves, where he talks about this, the four classic loves of the Greek language. There are four of them. Eros is the romantic, sexual kind of love. Uh, Storge is an affection of kind. Uh, phileo is a brotherly love. It's the word from which we named Philadelphia, incidentally, the least brotherly love city in the world. Um, 
And then fourth, agape, which is God's covenant love. Now, I want to just be upfront with you and say that uh, only two of these four are actually found in your Bibles. We don't ever see eros or storge used. Those words are not there. It's only phileo and agape. But I don't even want to make those distinctions for you this morning either. I, I think that's the wrong trail to go down. Usually, if you're in a church service and some guy's talking about these words, this is what you're going to hear. Phileo is like the lesser kind of love right? It's the one between humans. And agape is the greater love, the more significant love, because it's the love from God. Um, That sounds really great. Um, It just doesn't really stack up to scripture. And here's why. Uh, For example, Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be jealous and repent. This is God speaking, right? The risen savior. So you would expect agape here, but that's not what you get. You get phileo. God says, I brotherly love. Those whom I brotherly love, I reprove and discipline. That doesn't mean that it's a lesser love. It's, he's just using the word to communicate love. On the contrary, 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was a co-laborer in the gospel with Paul, who fell in love with the world and left the faith. And again, you would expect phileo here, but that's not what you get. You get agape. He agaped the world, and he moved on. So when we're talking about brands of love, I don't want us to get mixed up with the Greek words or whether one is more or less. Rather, I want to talk about where this love is derived from, because that's really how we identify the brand of love we're to be using. Where do we get it from? Where does it come from? Well, Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's John 13, 35. If you go one verse before that, John 13, 34, this is what he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So if you want to know how to maintain the same brand of love within the local body of church, here it is. You love others the way Jesus loves you. Simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. You love others the way Jesus loves you. So if you want to get on the same page, that's, that's relationship goal number one. We have to think the same. We have to be like-minded, have the same attitude. We need to love the same. Love others the way Jesus loves us. Third, he says, have the same purpose. Have the same purpose. Literally here, the Greek is united in spirit. He's saying be bound together in the same purpose, the same mission. For those of you who know me well, you know that I, I love Lord of the Rings. I love Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings world. And, and I, was, I thought about that this week as I was preparing for this message, the Fellowship of the Ring, this, this, this group of people bound together with a singular purpose, different individuals, different skill sets, different backgrounds, but all with the same purpose. And the funny thing about it is whenever they were not like-minded with one another, things turned out really bad for them. And whenever they didn't have the same kind of love for one another, they were divided. In fact, it ultimately broke the fellowship, right? But when when they solve those issues, the remnant that was left, they find purpose together. They find purpose together. There's a mission that they are on, and they accomplish that mission together. Listen, this should be a huge goal for us at City on a Hill, to be like-minded with one another, to love one another as Christ loved us, to be united in the vision and the mission that God has given us. What is our vision, by the way? Some of you don't even know. Some of you have been coming here really since the pandemic, and you've probably never heard us talk about the vision statement of City on a Hill. Here it is. I'm going to give it to you. Making church a safe place for people to let go of their secrets and providing a safe process for people to grow in emotional and spiritual maturity in Christ. That is the mission. 
That is the purpose. That is what God is calling us towards. Everything we do ought to be shaped by that vision. Everything from the elder level down should trend towards making church a safe place and providing a safe process. Let me give you a very practical example of how this plays itself out. I mentioned at the welcome, September 15th, we begin our fearless series. The goal, the mission of that series is to bring hurting women into the church who have either no church experience or who are hostile towards the church because of some wounding experience in their life in the church, to bring them in and to to have them, maybe for the first time ever, experience what real safety, Christian, Christ-exalting safety looks like. To find healing in a safe process that allows them to let go of things that they've held onto their whole lives, things that have torn them down, things that they thought they would never tell anyone. But understand this. I can't do that alone. I can't accomplish that alone. The staff here cannot do that alone. We can set everything up. We can create great resources to be used. James created this great resource with the help of other people here that can be used to accomplish a great many things. We have ads running on social media but we can't do it alone. We cannot do it alone. The hope of the world is not a great pastor or preacher. The hope of the world is not a great leadership team. The hope of the world is the church, the church collective, part of which is a local body here on the east side of Fort Worth called City on a Hill, and that includes you. That includes you. If you're a follower of Jesus coming here, you are a part of that vision. But you have to be on the same page if it's going to work out. We have to be like-minded. We have to love like Jesus loved, and we have to have the same mission. Relationship goal number one, get on the same page. Let's go to the next one. Are we having fun yet? Next one, climb down off of your pedestal. I love this one. Read verses three and four. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, this this would not have been popular in the ancient world. This is not a, this sounds like really good today. It sounds virtuous. This would not have been virtuous in Paul's time. This was a, a, a way that would have been very common to describe slavery, a slave. And so this was a uniquely Christian virtue during this time. You were either a Christian and and you you were striving for this or you were not a Christian and you were like, why would anyone want to do that? That makes no sense to me. As hard as it was then, I think if we dig down and we get really honest, it's even more difficult for us now in our current age given the, the standards by which we live morally in our culture. Let me ask this question for us. This is where we'll, we'll tackle this one. What pedestals do we put ourselves on? What pedestals do we put ourselves on? Let me count the ways we do it. Number one, here's the first one, the I love me some me pedestal. This is a very, very popular pedestal in the United States. Verse three, he says, do nothing from selfishness. That's really what this pedestal is all about, selfishness. The I love me some me pedestal says that I'm going to view church primarily through the lens of consumerism, right? So we live in a consumer-driven culture Everything that we do in the West is, commu- is consumer-based. And so understand that if it doesn't serve me, if it doesn't make my life better, if it doesn't improve my surroundings, if it doesn't make me happy, why would I want it? Why would that interest me? Now, the problem with that is that that kind of logic, that consumer-driven logic, 
often ends up working itself into the church, right? And we see this very commonly all the time. We've been seeing it for decades now. People only come to church more and more if it benefits them in some way, if it has something for them. So people will ask things like, well, do they have a good preacher? Can, can he communicate well? Is he relevant, right? Do they have a good youth group? Do they have a good children's ministry? Do they have good worship music? Is it, is it going to really pick me up? Is it going to perk me up? Music's a big part of my life. If they don't have good music, then I, I can't go there. Is the building big and new and impressive? Do they have awesome seats? Is there a, a craft coffee place somewhere there in the midst? If not, no thanks. No thanks. Not interested. Say, so who is the central person being served there in that scenario? Me. I love me some me. That's the pedestal that this mindset exists on. And understand, it goes even further than that. Even if the church does have all those things, still might not go every weekend. I might still go visit this other church every now and again because they do have this one thing that this current church doesn't offer, and I really like that as well. And so sometimes I go there on Saturdays or on Wednesdays because I really want to get that thing as well. And, and, and sometimes I'm not even going to go to church at all. You know, sometimes I have tickets to a football game or, or I have the opportunity to sleep in or I might go fishing and, and you know, just whatever's going whatever's to make me happy that morning. That's kind of where I'm going to go. And, and so it may be church, it may be somewhere else. That's the mentality that dominates America in the American church today. How does the church serve me? Let me, let, me, let me just be clear. There is one time, and only one time, that that phrase, how does the church serve me, is appropriate, and it's when Jesus is asking it. How does the church serve me? If it's not coming from the mouth of the Lord, it shouldn't be coming out at all. Now, we're talking about church, as I said in the beginning here, but for a moment... Let's just, let's just move over into the next aisle and let's apply this kind of mentality to marriage. Can we do that? Guys, guys if, you, if you applied this kind of logic that is so prevalent in churches today to your wives, how, how is this going to play out? How, how well does she serve me? Does she benefit me in some way? Does she really meet my needs? I mean, what do I get out of this arrangement? You know, because if there's not anything really compelling, I, there's, other, there's other fish out there. How's that going to work out for you? Let me tell you, if you apply the same logic that so many people apply to church, to a marriage, you know what you end up with? A divorce. Yeah, a divorce. It's a really dumb way of doing relationships. Now, do you get benefits and blessings out of the relationships that you're in? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're created for relationships, both vertically with the Lord and horizontally with other people. But if your view of church membership, marriage, friendship begins with, what do I get out of this? You've missed it. You've missed it. And Paul says, you need to climb down off of the I love me some me pedestal. If you're going to have relationships that are long and lasting and fulfilling that matter, climb down off of that pedestal. Number two, here's the second one, the what about me pedestal. Now, if the I love me some me pedestal is all about selfishness, the what about me pedestal is really all about jealousy, right? The first pedestal asks, what do I get out of this relationship? This one asks, why are you getting something I'm not getting out of this relationship? The first approach will often end up with infrequent church attendance. This one ends up with frequent change in church locations. Because what happens is, the, the what about me pedestal is never content. 
Well, I'm never content with anything I'm doing. I'm never content with anything that is happening here. I'm never content with the, with the, the preaching or the music or the message or, or whatever. But I'm also never willing to recognize that my discontentedness comes from within me and not from outside of me. And so people who climb this pedestal, here's what happens. They often become disenchanted with where they're serving. They feel like they're being underutilized or passed over or forgotten, like they're not getting enough attention. But they're also never really willing to put themselves out there, and they're very bad at taking negative feedback. And so what happens is the person begins to get jealous that other people are doing things that are seemingly fulfilling to them, and they're not, but people end up avoid talking to them about it because they don't want to deal with the fallout when it happens. So usually the person says, you know what, this church isn't for me. I'm not appreciated here. I need to go somewhere where I can really make a difference. And then the cycle repeats over and over and over and over again. We've had people come here who have had this exact problem, and that's a question I ask them. How many churches have you been to in the last five years? And it's usually a lot. Because they haven't figured out that that discontentedness doesn't have anything to do with the churches that they're in. Maybe the churches are making some, some mistakes, or, or, or I mean, every church is going to. But if there's this theme of repeating over and over again, then maybe the issue actually has something to do with the man or the woman in the mirror. And here's the deal. Let me just be honest with you for a minute. The what about me pedestal apart from it being really damaging to the relationships that you're currently engaged in, it's also really damaging to yourself. It's a thief of joy. It's a thief of peace and purpose. Why? Because it it diverts all of my attention away from everything else that God is doing and makes me focus on myself. But I never actually acknowledge my failures. In fact, verse 3, if you go on reading, Paul uses this term, empty conceit. It's literally, if you translate it literally, it's vain glory. In other words, what he's saying is don't live your life seeking empty, vain, self-serving glory. Why? Well, one, because glory doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And he says, I'll share my glory with no one. But two, you'll never actually find it. You will always underachieve. You will always fall short because that's who we are. And anytime anyone has some measure of higher success in your life, it will leave you asking the question, well, what about me? And then you've missed it. So we have the I love me some me pedestal. We have the what about me pedestal. We'll, we'll, we'll do this one. This is a, a, real, a real fun one. How about the, the don't worry about me pedestal? The don't worry about me pedestal. Now, this one's tricky because it looks mature, right? It looks like humility. Oh, don't worry about me. You know, my needs aren't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. I'm just here to serve others. Don't, don't, don't worry. I'm fine. I'm okay. Uh, That sounds like, wow, you're so mature. How are you? But it's not. It's not mature at all. It's actually the opposite of mature. It's actually quite unhealthy. It's what we would call false humility. And it's just as prideful. It's just as attention hungry as the first pedestal, the I love me some me pedestal. They're they're the same coin, just two different sides. False humility is all about garnering religious attention. That's really what it seeks to accomplish. And here's why it's bad for relationships, because it actually breeds bitterness among relationships. You can say all day long that you don't have any needs, but you do. You do. You can only cover that up for so long until those needs begin to break themselves out, and you inevitably get upset. And even though you're telling other people not to serve you or not to meet your needs in some way, you begin to get bitter that they haven't anyways, even though you've told them not to. And it creates all kinds of dissension 
in the body. Look at verse 4. Look at what Paul says. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Notice what he does not say there. He does not say, you should have no needs of your own. You should only focus on other people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you can see to it that your needs are getting met. Just make sure it isn't only your needs that are getting met. You have needs. You have real human needs. You're a human being. Everyone does. Everyone needs some level of, of, of service to them, of, of comfort, of love, of compassion, of care. It's both. You, you have needs, and that's valid, but don't stop there. You know, these pedestals, when we talk about these pedestals, and they're uncomfortable. Are, are they not uncomfortable a little bit? Because they sort of read us a little bit. We all are guilty at some level of climbing on these pedestals in, in various portions of our lives. And, and it reminded me this week, as I was thinking about that, of, of Jesus' words in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. This is the second part of the, the so-called Great Commission. If, if you remember the Great Commission, what's the first part of it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. In other words, with every part of you, Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment. Love God with everything. But then we come to Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, and he says, there is a second commandment that is like the first. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying... In other words, the same amount of love, attention, and care that you desire, you are to give that to other people as well. Here's what's interesting, is that if you climb any of these pedestals, the I love me some me pedestal, the what about me pedestal, or the don't worry about me pedestal, if you climb any of them, you cannot fulfill this commandment in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. 39. You cannot do it. Selfishness, jealousy, false humility will ruin your attempt at walking in obedience to this commandment. If you are on that first pedestal and selfishness is your sort of motive of operation, you will only love your neighbor as long as it benefits you. Because your consumer, your consumer mindset dictates that. So I'll love my neighbor as it benefits me in some positive manner. If it doesn't benefit me, thanks but no thanks. Someone else can take care of you. If I'm on the second pedestal and jealousy is really the binding thing that is carrying me along in life, I'm not going to love my neighbor. They're already getting enough love. I'll actually tear them down. I'll gossip or I'll slander them or do whatever it takes to bring them down to a level where I'm at so I feel a little bit better about myself. And if I'm on the false humility pedestal, I can't love them as myself because I don't believe myself needs love to begin with. Don't worry about me. Well, if you... If you're going to love your neighbor like yourself, then you've just robbed them of any hope of love. You see, these are relationship killers, every one of these. That's why Paul says not only you're to get on the same page together, but climb down off your pedestal and get on level ground with the cross of Christ where no one is better than the other, where kings and rulers of this world stand with the regular common village people, all equal, all fallen, all in need of a savior all in need of grace. We having fun? Woo! All right. We have relationship goals. Get on the same page. Think the same. Love the same. Have the same purpose. Number two, climb down off your pedestal, whether it's selfishness or jealousy or false humility. And last, we'll end here. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Read verse five. He says, have this attitude, there's that Greek word for neo, have this mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This same attitude or mindset is found in the Savior himself. Now, this next part of this passage is incredible. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is this sort of exposition 
of the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus. But I, I want us to read this, having just read verses 1 through 4, I want us to read this with those things in mind, because it's really incredible what we see him doing here in this passage. First, we see him determining unity. He determines unity. <clears throat> so that first, that first relationship goal is all about unity, right? Getting on the same page. Well, as it turns out, Jesus is actually the determining factor of unity. We're not only to be unified in our thinking, we're to be unified in Christ-like thinking, right? We're not to be unified in love, just in any kind of love. We're to be specifically unified in the way that Christ loves us. We're not just unified in any purpose or mission. We share the purpose and mission that Christ has called us to. So we need to get on the same page, right? We need to to, uh, get synced up. Well, it is Christ who determines the page that we're on. He's the one that sets the standards. Now, how is he able to do that? Because he's God. He's God in the flesh. He has equality with God, Paul says in verse 6. He determines unity because he's the author of reality. So he sets the standard. He, he tells us this is what you're to be unified around. This is how you're to be unified together. Not only that, too, he demonstrates humility. Verses 6 and 7, it says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now think about this for a minute. Relationship goal number two was climb down off of that pedestal, right? Paul's telling us that Jesus actually climbed down off of a pedestal as well. It just wasn't a bad pedestal. It was a divine pedestal. Christ on a divine pedestal, equality with God, Equally, God in nature climbs down from this divine pedestal into human flesh, into the form and likeness of man. The Apostle John says it this way in John 1.14. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace In truth, he climbs down from his divine pedestal and he humbles himself with human flesh. That Greek word for humility, it's it's a word that legitimately just means to bring low. He lowered himself down into the human realm. You see, when we talk about humility in church, we, we don't need to imagine what humility might have looked like. We don't need to have conjecture over what humility is. Jesus demonstrates it to us. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he determines the unity that we are supposed to have and he demonstrates the humility that we are supposed to embody. And third, he deserves honor. Look at verses 9 through 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus deserves honor now, right now. He deserves that we bow and that we confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. When we talk about city on a hill being this web of relationships, right? More than anything else, I want you to get this. We should honor Christ. The way that we interact with one another, the way we serve one another and serve with one another, the way we do life with one another, all of it should be honoring to the Lord Jesus. That is owed to him 
It doesn't matter how well we do anything else. If our knees are not bowing before him, we've missed the mark. He deserves our honor now. But check this out. One day, he will not only deserve honor, he will demand it. One day, every knee will bow. Not just Christians, not just the church. Every knee, both Christian and non-Christian. Some in humble submission to the Lord and some in fear and trembling. But every knee will bow. Let me just tell you. Let me just be very upfront. I I had a, a, a... passion this week as I was preparing this message. This is such an important message for me personally, for you to hear. It's important to me because I love you people. I love this church. I love pastoring this church. And I want us to be a people that the world looks at and thinks, that is what I want in my life. Something is different about those people, and I want to be a part of that. Relationship goals. I want us to be on the same page in thought and in love and in our mission and purpose. I want us to climb down from the pedal stools that we are existing on and love neighbors as ourselves. But, but let me just tell you, you'll never hit those relationship goals if you don't have your eyes fixed on Jesus. You'll never do it. You will always fail. You will never succeed. You will never be on the same page. You will never give up selfishness. You will never put down jealousy. You will never stop with false humility unless you fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus. So I want to give you a chance right now. At the end of this message. We're not going to make a spectacle about it. The band's not going to come up and play just as I am. But if you've never bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ before, now is the time. Now is the time. Today is the day. As Hebrews says, do not harden your hearts if you hear his voice as they did in the wilderness. Will you consider that? Will you consider bowing before him and confessing that he is Lord and Savior. Will you do it while he is deserving? Don't wait till he demands it. Do it now. This could be a new day for you that marks the beginning of the rest of your life. Because here's the deal. We will never be what I believe God calls us to be, a truly safe place, capable of loosing bonds, spiritual bonds, that Jesus talked about to Peter and the apostles at the end of his Gospels. We will never be able to speak peace and really mean it if we're not on our knees before the Lord Christ. So I want to give you that opportunity. Will you choose to do so? I pray that you will. Let's pray together. Lord, help us. Help us turn our attention away from from other churches, from what other ministries are doing, some good, some great. But regardless of good or great, let us turn our attention away from that and focus on what you would have us do. Who do you say we are at City on a Hill? Are we people that will be unified in our attitudes and our love and our purpose? Will we be people that are willing to get out of our own way and and let you do the work here that you desire to do in our midst, to put down selfishness and jealousy and false humility. But more than anything, will we be people that bow before you? That is my prayer, that we would above all things honor you and give glory to you, for you and you alone are 
worthy of it. And it's not just words that we sing in songs, but I pray it's the heartbeat of who we are here. It's the heartbeat of of the ministry here. And I pray for those this morning who have never made that confession, that they would choose today. They know what's right. They know, they, they hear that prompting of the Holy Spirit in their lives this morning. And I pray that they would bow. I know there's fear, the uncertainty of what it looks like to follow you, of what people will think. God, give them bravery and courage and let us be a place that receives them well and brings them into this mission you've called us to. How we love you and we thank you and we praise you for the work you do here. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 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 Hey, uh, if you, wow, it was like the Grammys. I just got cut off. Um, if you would uh, say a prayer today at some point for uh, Pastor James, he is uh, still recovering and it's a slow recovery for him and I'm sure he will appreciate the love and uh, affection from afar. I just want to say that him and Laura both and and several of the others that are recovering, just a a prayer of healing uh, for the people who are sick right now. God bless you. See you next time.